Hello and welcome to Bondcast, a podcast series where we discuss our views on the latest themes and events shaping rates markets. I'm Imogen Bakra, UK rate strategist, and I'm joined today by our global market specialists, Giles Gale and Jan Navruzzi. Okay, Imogen, we're going to start in the UK. Where else could we start this week? Because it has just been endless drama. And I'm sure that you're still buzzing with, I'm not quite sure whether it's just you, adrenaline or euphoria or whatever it is that I know. I'm not quite sure if euphoria is the right word, but I think that we've all been giddy with the the intensity of it all. So um, now I guess the first question for me to direct at you is what has been going on this week? (laughs) Well, yeah, for anyone who has had their head buried in the sand this week, um, it's been a lot of political noise out of the UK uh, and without running through a kind of blow-by-blow account um, and telling you how many times I've refreshed my Twitter timeline this week, uh, the the essence of it is is that Boris Johnson has now resigned as Prime Minister, having lost a huge amount of, of ministers over the first couple of days of this week. Um, He has now resigned uh, and a leadership contest is is underway, essentially. We will find out more um, next week on the exact timeline for that leadership uh, contest for the leader of the Conservative Party. Uh, Until such time, he uh, will remain as Prime Minister, um, although that feels a little bit up in the air right now, um, as he's uh, clearly not the most um, popular minister, should we say? Um, but but that's where things stand at the moment. Um, there's been a lot of volatility, a lot of news. The news flow has been very fluid, so um, I'm well aware that that things could change even by the time we uh, get this podcast out. Uh, but that's where we are right now, as of uh, Thursday afternoon. Okay, um, so. Bringing it back to markets, I suppose, um, what does this change for the Bank of England, do you think? So I guess for markets, the the kind of key takeaways are that this increases the chances of early elections. And as a kind of byproduct of that, I think this increases the degree to which we might expect fiscal slippage and perhaps brings that fiscal slippage earlier, you know, perhaps as soon as the autumn budget, if not before, rather than later. Um, So, you know, at the margin, I think that this implies that you may well see um, slightly higher rates across the curve, but but certainly I guess it gives the Bank of England um, a little bit more space to, to raise rates further. We've actually updated our bank rate call this week, and it's not just about the political development, it's all also about um, kind of the strength of, of some of the data that we've seen over the last couple of weeks, but, you know, where our base case was for just one additional 25 basis point rate hike this year um, in August. And then we had two more rate hikes, 25 basis points next year in February and May. We've just bought those two kind of later rate hikes forwards by a quarter. So we now see one more hike this year uh, and one, only one more hike next year, um, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, and I think... On the other side of the coin, because also, you know, the Bank of England meeting in in a couple of weeks, it's not just important from a bank rate perspective, but it's also the meeting which they promised to come back to us on quantitative tightening. To the extent that, you know, earlier elections and a change in government does actually imply... 
like I mentioned, further risk of kind of fiscal slippage, a bit more fiscal stimulus than we might have been expecting. And therefore, you know, slightly higher guilt issuance than we might have had in our baseline forecast. I think that that might just temper a little bit the extent to which the bank feels particularly kind of gung-ho about its plans for QT. So um, we didn't anyway expect sales to begin anytime soon we'd already penciled in um, active sales not beginning until 2023 so we haven't pushed that date back at all but we have slightly reduced um, the pace at which we think they will do those active sales uh, and listeners will know that we'd previously expected them to be at 50 billion of active sales a year and we've just revised that down slightly to, to 35 billion all right what does that all mean for markets then Imogen? Well, I'm going to sound a little bit like a broken record here because I still think that the front end is pricing in much too much. We've had a big repricing over the last couple of weeks. So, um, well, probably over the last three weeks. So we have definitely have spoken since then, but, but pricing for bank rate expectations by the end of the year have gone from about 190 billion 190 billion, 190 basis points to 150 basis points. Um, so we have had kind of 40 basis points of, of tightening priced out, uh, but we still think that there's much further to go. You know, as I just told you all, um, our base case forecast is now for 50 basis points of tightening by the end of this year uh, versus the market's 150 basis points. So there's a clear kind of 100 basis points we think of, of juice there to be priced out at, at the front end. Um, so no change to the view when it comes to front end rates. I think for longer rates, you know, we have been bullish for a couple of weeks now. We set this target at 2.15. Um, we kind of called the turn in the market at the right point and you know, we, we said the peak was at 265, which is where it transpired to be. And, and um, you know, have, uh, rates have been going the right way versus our forecast, although we didn't really expect the speed at which they have reached this 215 level. We, we put it on as a kind of summer target. And I think they got there within about 10 days um, in these kind of very volatile markets. But, you know, everything that I've been saying about the fact that this adds, I think, supply risks to medium term fiscal risks that already existed, just uh, now I think can, is enough for us to switch marginally bearish again. And I say marginally bearish because, you know, I think there's offsetting factors like the fact that we think QT might be reduced slightly now, plus the fact that, you know, we still expect a big repricing at the front end and, and that can limit how, how much higher longer yields can go. Um, but I do think probably, um, you know, having gone through that 215 target markets have now adjusted enough to this, these kind of growth, growth concerns and and the kind of fiscal supply slippage risks and QT can, can now weigh a bit more on the long end. Um, so we've updated our sort of near-term guilt yield target to 225, and I think that can rise closer to sort of 245 over the course of the next year. Uh, all right, that's probably enough on the UK this week then. And like I said, I'm sure something else will have happened by the time this podcast goes out. So <laughs> perhaps we don't need to go into too much more detail on that. So over to you then, Giles. We had um, the ECB minutes today. Um, obviously, we've heard a lot from them since the meeting anyway, uh, you know, and, and we've also had an ad hoc meeting since the meeting from these minutes. So perhaps you're going to tell me they were a little bit outdated and irrelevant, but did we learn anything new from them? What I learn every single time is just how long the minutes are. Um, just identifying the important bits. I mean, you know, if you didn't have a word search function, I mean, where would we be? Um, so, you know, there were some interesting things in there. I mean, there was some questioning about uh, of the staff forecasts, you know, sort of inbuilt intent 
tendency to revert back towards the inflation target and so you know a little bit of skepticism around that um you know which gave it a little bit of a, a hawkish feel i thought um yeah there was there was you know a comment that you know the tightening implied at the time uh, by the market wouldn't have you know was already kind of baked in the cake for um for the forecast the staff forecasts and therefore wouldn't necessarily be enough to bring inflation back down and so you know the interpretation there would be that you know, that was a call for an effort to try to increase um what the market was uh was implying at the front end um you know there was a little bit of concern about the inevitable fiscal uh support still to come uh, you know, a couple of quantifications of the fiscal support that had all between 0.8 and 1%, um, so already reasonably significant, but um, yeah, that's that was there in the discussion, as it should be, um, and something that's important and uh, that we are also monitoring reasonably closely. Um, and there was also some discussion of, at that point, at least you know, according to the, the account of the minutes, um, some discussion of an anti-fragmentation tool um, and you know, comments to the, you know, to, where the sense of the comments were, uh, you know, it would be in keeping with this idea of uh, of, of, of separation of, um, of you know, different tools to do different things, if you if, if you like. So a broadly sympathetic discussion around uh, an anti-fragmentation tool at the time, um, but clearly not the urgency to actually deliver the announcement, which we now know only took them a week of pretty extreme severe stress to, uh, to, to come and come out and make in their ad hoc meeting. Um, yeah. But by and large, yes, you're right. It was a little bit dated. Yeah, as is often the way, I, I suppose. So thinking a bit more about the present then and, and what might have evolved since that meeting, we've obviously had quite significant uh, euro weakness. How worried do you think the ECB may or may not be about this and, and how might that translate into policy action or not? Well, so that, I mean, this is a, an interesting and sort of fairly important question because, of course, the, the euro has fallen by... A solid 10% against the dollar this year, um, on the back of weakness last year as well. But um, you no, know, 10% in six months, and it's a big move. Um, but on, you know, but the, really, that's been dollar strength. And so, actually, if you look at the trade weighted euro, that's only down. Well, I mean, it's it's, it's down a reasonably small fraction of that, you know, a quarter roughly. I mean, down sort of between two and three percent. So. The question, I suppose, is what do they really what do they really focus on? And normally, you would say they focus on the trade weighted, but actually, I think that the the dollar cross is arguably what they should be focusing on more because, you know, what I mean, if you think you know, the trade weighted, it's about the, the the overall mix of trade, right? But um, you know, for inflation, really, what matters is um, is the supply side. And in particular, um, you know, energy, which we're increasing. I mean, so that, that, that's all built in, well, I mean, mostly, largely built in dollars, let's say. Um, and obviously, the component, you know, we, we're, we're buying a lot more, or, or the <laughs> EU is buying a lot more 
gas from the US. Um, now that also will be in dollars. Um, you know, so I, th I think that you know, a reasonably large shock needs to be factored in here. And you know, while the sensitivities generally are pretty low, so a 10% shock to trade weighted would be something like 0 0.3 um, on the sort of old estimates. But I think that that's probably higher um, in a high inflation environment. And they're concerned about, you know, because the price shocks filter in more quickly and then broaden across the economy more quickly. Um, now, so, so I still think that we might be, um, no, this might be a, a reasonable concern. I'm not saying that they'll be panicking over it, um, but you know, I think it's, uh, it's definitely something that they will be worried about. Fair enough. Bringing this back uh, to bonds then, just in case any readers are worried, any listeners, sorry, are worried that we're straying too far off piece. Um, we've had, you know, another big week of volatility. And, and now I don't even know if we can keep saying that because it's just become the new normal. Um, but a big rally in, in uh, well, fixed income generally, but but in uh, bonds, I suppose, is relevant for you. So what's going on there and, and how do you see this playing out over the next couple of weeks? I mean, I wish I, 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 over the next couple of weeks, I don't, I, I don't know, but I suppose in the same direction that I would say over the next couple of months or the next couple of quarters, which is overall, I think from here, higher rates. Um, that, that said, I expect the volatility, which uh, no, actually today has been a rare sort of reasonably well-behaved day, but um <laughs> I like that you're saying yeah. that in the context of a, a 10 basis point move in 10 year bonds right well, now. Over the last couple of weeks. Um, yeah. Yeah. Listen, um, I, I think I think the rates will actually continue to rise. Um, and, and for for mostly you know, for most of the same reasons that I've been talking about for for you know, all, all year, really. I mean, I think at the end of quantitative easing. Um, there still matters a lot. I think that investors, you know, despite their growth concerns, are not going to assume that we are trend. No, we're going to go seamlessly back to a, a low inflation equilibrium anytime soon. On the contrary, I think that inflation uncertainty is is, is still very high, and um, and overall, you now that is going to no, it's, it, it's going to mean more caution. So. Um, yeah. And, and then I, I, finally, I think that the the really hard choices for central bankers are, still, are, yet, are yet to come. I mean, you know, basically, they've all just been, you know, they've been doing the obvious and easy stuff, which is sort of, yeah. you know, relatively quickly moving interest rates back towards, um, to, towards neutral in a reasonably benign economic environment. I mean, we're all worried about growth slowing, but it hasn't actually been slowing that dramatically. And we're certainly, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think anyone thinks we're in, now in recession. Um, you know, so I think they can always, you know, so, so the question is, you know, will they hit the brakes? Um, will they really see this through and you know, make sure that they you know, get a really good, strong deflationary recession or not? <laughs> And no, I think that those are still questions that will weigh on uh, investor sentiment. Um, and 
well, we've I've already mentioned the the fiscal side of things, which in Europe I think is um, is as likely as in the UK to to be um, an important part of the panorama in the second half, and arguably significantly more so than in the US. So maybe that's a segue to Jen. Perfect segue into Jan. And actually, why don't we just kick off the, the US part of this podcast with a, a pretty similar question, Jan, because, you know, clearly this, you know, move in fixed income has been global. Treasuries have fully participated. Um, what, what are you thinking about rates in the US from here? I think, I mean, I'm going to end up overlapping a lot with what Giles said, but I, it was it was a very similar story where in the US, there was a lot of focus on inflation and now people took the idea that a recession is imminent and just ran with it. And you know, listeners, now we have been talking about you know, like our long conviction in, uh, in treasuries, how we thought you know, like the sell-off was a little bit overdone and the next step would be markets actually focusing on, on recession or, or an economic downturn. So that part is not really wrong. Uh, what we thought was a little bit overdone was the pace that it happened because a momentum, uh, a momentum like that just requires at some point data to to back those assumptions. You know, we can't like just we can't just assume that we're already in a recession. We can't just assume that it's already a you know, like a foregone conclusion. But that's how markets traded it. And as soon as you know, like there was almost no hurdles on the path towards lower yields. And then strong data came from, from, uh, from services side, from job side. Uh, that's the jobs number I'm talking about. Uh, we will get the actual non-farm payrolls tomorrow. So I don't want to kind of talk ahead of that, which might completely make this uh, <laughs> irrelevant by the time that comes out. But, but that being said, you know, data came stronger than expected and yields flipped right back up, which is the reaction you would expect. So. We still have a lot of sympathy with the view that the markets are going to increasingly focus on uh, on the recessionary risk as opposed to the inflationary risk, but that has to be supported by that. That, in our view, that has to be more of a grind towards lower or kind of like finding a range in lower yields as opposed to snapping back lower and just everyone kind of jumping onto it, which kind of, you know, that type of volatility exacerbates the liquidity problems in the market, increased uncertainty, which uh, even with lower yields could be uh, hurtful for uh, risk assets and uh, uh, and such. But we're certainly not out of the woods yet. And uh, and that was pretty much what was going on with treasury markets. Just people took that idea and then realized that we need some data to actually back it up. And they didn't get that data yet. So pushing you a little bit on the data, then I appreciate that we are recording this on Thursday. And so NFPs will come out, well, for us in the UK around lunchtime tomorrow, which nicely coincides with when we publish this podcast most of the time. So uh, we may very quickly be proved wrong or right, but it's not just NFPs tomorrow. I suppose we also get inflation next week. And, and they're really the two key data points that, that the Fed will be watching. How, What's our kind of broad expectations for for how they might sit versus the market and then really you know what that does mean for the outlook for rates from there um so i think the the jobs part of the or the unemployment side of the economy is regaining a lot of traction uh, until now we've just almost exclusively focused on on inflation and now uh the question will be how much the fed kind of caves into the to the view that economic down, downturn is slowing down and if my read of the the semi-annual testimony of Powell's semi-annual testimony to Congress is right. Uh, the Fed has adopted a stance that they're willing to sacrifice growth. They're willing to overshoot in the direction of 
doing too much as opposed to risking doing too little a little bit again and letting inflation uh, you know, uh, become a little bit more unanchored or kind of uh, increase at a similar high pace. I think that's the unacceptable scenario for them, even though the minutes, for example, didn't have a single mention of a recession, as a lot of headlines pointed out, even though they discussed that uh, growth outlook was skewed to the downside, or sorry, the risk to the growth was skewed to the downside, there wasn't really a kind of explicit worry that, you know, the activity is about to come to a halt. Uh, that being said, I think it is right to assume that they're willing to they're willing to sacrifice growth in order to contain inflation. So jobs will be important, but in, in my view, the unemployment uh, from at least from unemployment side, it will be a little bit of a lagging indicator this time around, as there's been so much structural mismatch between hiring and uh, you know unwillingness to fire people right away. So there's still uh, there's still a lot of dislocations within. I guess like sectoral dislocations that I still don't think will be resolved as quickly. So I wouldn't be looking to see you know negative uh, non-farm numbers, non-farm numbers right away, uh, but more so look at the spending side of the equation, see if uh, there's less demand from consumers to spend their savings on uh, and income on on services and such. kind of mentioned them already but at risk of sounding uh, very unimaginative in my questions and just asking the same to you and Giles we obviously got the FOMC minutes this week you did like I say just mention them was there anything else kind of within the minutes that that is worth highlighting to our listeners or that you think might be important for markets uh unfortunately no and again this repeats what, <laughs> what Giles <laughs> said but uh, uh they, they, it feels like a dated document now. It's not as timely because so much has changed. They've had plenty of press conferences since then. They had the semi-annual uh, testimony that I just mentioned. So the message has been conveyed. There's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, July is going to be either a 50 or 75 basis point hike. Uh, we still lean towards 75 and market's not uh, fully there yet. So there's an opportunity to capture if you, uh, if you believe that that's going to be the false action they go with. Uh, but just really, it all came down to uh, the worries that inflation inflation risks are still there, and they have to act, and they have taken the stance of uh, we're willing to do more uh, as opposed to we're willing to back out as soon as possible. So, so that's the main takeaway. And you know, it would have been a lot to learn if we didn't have all this guidance in between the meeting and the minutes. But now it almost feels like a little bit of an outdated document. Okay, that's probably a good place for us to leave that there then this week. Uh, things are changing so quickly, not just here in the UK, but in global fixed income, mar- well, in global markets, really, that I'm sure there'll be plenty for us to talk about and catch up on next week. Uh, so thank you to all our listeners for joining us. Uh, and just a reminder that if you liked today's episode, please don't forget to hit the like button and click subscribe so you can kick the- so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they're available. Thanks. See you next week. <laughs>